welcome to Drawing Inspiration. I am your host, Mike Hendley. In this podcast, I look beyond the pencils, the brushes, the sketchbooks, and the iPads to discover what it means to be an artist. Join me as I speak to other creatives about their journey, as well as reflecting on my own artwork experiences. Episode 89, depicting Canadian landscapes, cottage country, and streetcars using acrylics with Kenneth Hirsch. Hi everyone and welcome back. A few quick updates and then we'll get right into the interview. So I wanted to talk about some books first. In episode 87 podcast, I spoke to Christina Wald. Wonderful interview with her and part of our conversation was around her Kickstarter project for her My Sketching Obsession book and she was looking to have that funded through Kickstarter and I'm happy to hear that it was fully funded and went beyond her goals. So I'm really excited and congrats, Christina, on that. The other book that I wanted to mention is a book about paleo art. It's called Mesozoic Art, Dinosaurs and Other Ancient Animals in Art, and it's available on Amazon. It includes artists like Raven, who's somebody who I follow on Twitter and has been in the Sire chat kind of conversations that we do every Wednesday at uh, 9 p.m. on Twitter, and that's in Twitter Spaces. So it's a community is called SciArt, so you can join that, and we meet there on Wednesdays at 9 Eastern, and we talk about art and talk about science. It's always an interesting conversation, and uh, she mentioned she was in this book, so of course I had to, to pick it up. It is a mix of various paleo artists, and they do get... I guess a small bit from each sale of this book. So I would recommend if you're interested at all or know someone who's interested in paleo art, uh, picking up this book. So you can find that through my gear link, which is on mikehenley.com. If you scroll down to the bottom, you'll see the book there. And if you're looking for a gift for somebody, it's a fantastic idea. It's a huge uh, hardcover book, perfect for a coffee table and beautiful, beautiful art by these wonderful artists. So check it out. So as a matter of art updates, I did some more mice in watercolor. So I really like harvest mice. So I did two, two more pieces and I've done these on the Etcher uh, greeting cards. And this is part of a contest I had run a while back. So I'm sending those out. So it's been great working with this palette around the harvest mice. So I've done, I guess, three in total, but two of them are greeting cards. And I also did a Pine Martin which was kind of fun as well. Once again, very quick on these greeting cards, but it was good. And um, this paper that Etcher has for these greeting cards is just incredible. It's like 300 pound, beautiful heavyweight, and the envelopes are just as robust. So if you're looking for some really high quality, original blank greeting cards, check these out from Etcher. They are incredible. I really enjoyed working with these. I have a few more that I'm going to do, but uh, it's been a lot of fun. And I did get, as a matter of follow-up from a previous podcast, I reached out to Golden around their core watercolor. So that's Q-O-R. And I wanted to get uh, a chance to play with them, but it seems like they're really hard to find where I am. So I reached out to them and they were kind enough to send me some samples. They just wanted me to try it and provide my honest opinion. They weren't expecting anything. I didn't even have to review them. But I have to say that I love these paints. I am going to, so I did a little experiment with a tiger eye, and I'll link to that. That was done with these core watercolors. I am going to do a few more pieces that kind of 
push into the samples that they sent me. I couldn't really use uh, the wonderful crimson and, and the wonderful <laughs> blue that they sent me in this tiger eye. So I'm going to try and do a few more, but I really love, like they're so vibrant and just beautiful watercolors. So I'm excited to try these out. I'm not excited that I may have to buy some more because I have a full palette of Daniel Smith paint at this point. But uh, I just wanted to say I'm really impressed. I will talk about it as I go more into this and try a few more colors and maybe broaden my the size of the piece I'm working on as well. But uh, I'll be upfront with all of this stuff that I use uh, just because I'm being sent a sample. I, I want to make sure that you're not going to go out and spend the money on something that you're not going to enjoy. And these paints are not inexpensive. So uh, I want to make sure that as I get into some of the other colors that are, some are more opaque and some are more transparent, that I have a chance to play with them and I can provide you my honest feedback from somebody who's used a fair bit of Daniel Smith watercolors, which is my go-to doing that kind of work. So more to come. The big thing I've been working on is the acrylic Siberian tiger. I've had it sitting on my easel for months and finally decided to draw it and to start painting. So I primed the canvas. It's a two foot by three foot canvas. I primed it with black gesso and it was already pre-primed with white, but I primed it with black because this Siberian tiger is kind of walking out of a, uh, a jungle or a forest. I got the image from Animal, I think Wildlife Animal References. Uh, so I paid for this reference. It wasn't a lot, but I wanted to make sure that I compensated the photographer because we don't have tigers in Ontario. <laughs> so I wanted to do this piece. I really like the idea of, of surrounding an animal with black. And so this was a perfect piece for me. I'm using uh, golden paints, a mix of the standard golden acrylic paint, as well as the open acrylic. So I've got some of that as well. And I've got some medium to help kind of as a retardant to, uh, to slow the drying process. So I'm going to play with some of that. And somebody asked me how I created this. So I didn't just uh, sketch it. I wanted to make sure it was accurate. I wanted to focus more on the painting and not the drawing. I think I could draw fairly well, but I kind of wanted to accelerate myself. So I used the DaVinci app, which is a, a mobile a phone app. Normally it's designed so that you can sit the phone above your work and kind of look at the phone as you're drawing, almost like a projector system. But that wouldn't work for such a large piece. So what I actually did is I put my iPhone in a tripod and placed it fairly far back from the, uh, from the easel. And then what I did is I screen shared my iPhone with my Mac. And then I had an external monitor on my Mac that I could look at. So I had this large monitor beside my easel that showed what my phone was seeing. And that's what I did. I would move the image. I would go... Um, sketch it for a little bit, then I move it again and sketch it. And all I really wanted was the outlines. I wanted to understand where the eyes were, where the ears, uh, where the body kind of fell. I wanted to make sure I got the pupil distance right. So that's all I was really focusing on. I've got some of the, the blacks kind of organized, but I really just wanted a rough idea of where things would sit and making sure that I fit it properly within the, uh, the two foot by three foot canvas. So that was really helpful. I'm not big fan of the grid system and I actually I think I've only used it twice um, and I've only used this DaVinci app I think twice so I'm pretty happy with how it turned out I think I may do this again I tried the mural app so, so the same company makes something called a mural app or whatever the case and there was just too much lag it was blurry like I think they could do a better job I wouldn't recommend the mural app but the DaVinci one is actually uh, pretty decent for what it does 
So one of the things I wanted to mention as well is, you know, I, I'm quite busy. I've got a full-time job, you know, family, house, everything that goes on with that. So I don't get a lot of time to sit down and work on the acrylic. You know, I can't, I could maybe spend two hours, maybe three, but that's about it. And it gets much less during the week. So what I've done is I've used this Masterson Stay Wet palette. It looks like a Tupperware container. It's got a lid. So it comes with this absorbent kind of sponge that you lay in the bottom. And on top of that, you put almost like a parchment paper. And then you wet the whole thing. There's a whole process for doing it. So then you lay your acrylics. You squeeze out your acrylics on this sheet. And then you use them. You would. And then when you're done, you cover it. And I've been using that for over a week and a half now, and my paints are still wet. So it's been fantastic for me to go in and paint for an hour and then clean my brushes, close it up, and come back the next day and I can continue working. So I would recommend if you're constrained with time, don't be restricted in thinking I can't do acrylics because of that. Because with the Stay Wet palette, I'm able to kind of just contain those acrylics, not have them dry out on me. Now I have a separate palette that I can use that is just open to the air. And I do, I use that when I was doing some larger, uh, I, I decided to put some black, uh, Mars black around the, um, the tiger on top of the black gesso. Still not sure that was a good decision, but it's done. <laughs> but for that, I used this external palette just because I wanted a bit more room and I was using a fair bit of black. So I decided to do it that way. But this Stay Wet palette's been brilliant. I really enjoy using it. And we'll talk more about acrylics when we get into the interview. So just with regard to the Masterson Stay Wet palette, I will include a link to that in that gear page where you can find the book. And I'm also going to include a link to the LED light. I use I bought this LED light from Amazon, kind of a horizontal bar of light, and I clip it to the top of the easel, and it's been brilliant for lighting up what I'm working on. I can use it on my drafting table. It works off USB, so you can it comes with a plug. You can plug it into a wall, but you can also power it from one of those battery banks. And so just love this thing. It wasn't expensive. And there's, I think, three different colors of light. And then there's, I think, three or four different levels of light. So it's these small things that just make it much more fun. And you can clip it to anything. It's got a clip built into it. And I really like it. So I just thought I'd, I had a few people ask me about the light. And I, so I'm including a link in my gear to that. So you can find both the Stay Wet palette, as well as this LED light link in my gear page. So I just wanted to mention with regard to the next episodes and what I'm planning. So I think episode 90, which will be the next one, I'm going to talk about my retreat I did this past summer and what my plans are for 2023. I think it's that time of year when people are thinking about what to do, how to do it, um, reflecting on what they've done. So I'm going to spend the whole episode just talking about that. And then the episode that would come out on December 26th will not happen. That is the middle of downtime, so I'm not going to release an episode on December 26th, so that's a heads up, and then we'll be back into 2023 with episode 91. I just thought I'd give you a heads up. I'll remind you again on episode 90 that there won't be, uh, the episode 91 won't be till 2023, but I appreciate all of you listening and, and tuning in. So one last thing is with my store online where I'm selling prints and originals, I'm knocking 25% off all prints and originals until midnight, November 30th. I am planning to stock the shop with some new prints as well as a bunch of originals I have around here. And so I'm going to do that over the holidays. So if you want to subscribe to my newsletter, which I haven't put out in a while, 
I will announce through the newsletter when I have some new materials on my website, and some of those will include uh, some of the originals that you've seen on my Instagram, and I encourage you to check them out, and that'll be, uh, I'll be stocking that up over the holidays into uh, January. So just uh, subscribe to the newsletter. You can find that on my website, uh, both uh, mikehenley.com and drawinginspiration.fm. So that's it for updates. Now let's head into the interview. My guest this week is only about four hours from me, but he's been making ways with his art worldwide, and you may have seen it on some recent billboards in the U.S. as part of Fine Art America's media campaign. His acrylic work started with Barnes, then moved to depictions of historic Toronto and the clear cold water and deep blue skies of cottage country. As an accomplished landscape artist, he has been able to capture the beauty, and for me, the sounds of sitting in the middle of a lake on a canoe. It takes a special kind of artist to stir the soul and ignite the senses, and his work does just that. His passion was clear from an early age, but his path took many interesting turns along the way. We will explore that journey and learn why being an artist is so special at any age. To talk about his creative journey, I welcome to the Drawing Inspiration podcast, Ken Kirsch. Ken, how are you? I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Mike. It's such a pleasure to have you on. I've been kind of watching you for some time, <laughs> looking at your work. I know that we may get into this at some point, but it reminded me so much of the Group of Seven. And I just think you you produce these lovely landscapes and, and the paintings you've done around kind of Toronto and, and um, all the streetcars. It's just... It's just wonderful, and uh, I really wanted to have a chance to for us to connect and kind of talk through your journey and understand where you came from. So I really appreciate you putting the time aside to to have this conversation. Thank you, thank you so much. I'm flattered. I'm flattered that I attracted your attention and and uh, in in what I do, and um, and we're here today. And uh, I'm looking forward to our conversations, Mike. You, you're a great artist, by the way. You're very good. I love your work. So. Thank you. I've seen your work too online, <laughs> so it's kind of mutual here that we're meeting, and uh, I'm delighted. That's awesome. Thank you for having. Thank me. you. You know, we're we're probably a sim- more closer vintage than me and some of the other guests I've had on, so I think we're probably have a bit of a crossover there. <laughs> I want to understand, with as I do with all guests, about where you came from and whether creativity is something that you fostered through your childhood and into high school, or was it something that you that came to you later on, like as a kid, were you a creative? Uh, yeah, it was something that I think I was born with. Um, even as a very, very young, as a toddler, um, I was very creative. I was building things. Um, my mother said they, the game mousetrap, I don't know, my parents couldn't afford it or didn't want it to get me it, you know, and uh, I built my own. And my mom used to tell that story. I was probably four or five and I used railroad tracks and marbles and one thing knocked into another and flipped it over and, and company would come into my room and it was the entire room. I'm like four or five years old. And, uh, and, and then I, I don't know. I, you know, in school, you sort of, you know, you, you learn how to paint and color with crayons, you know, you're in kindergarten. And by grade one, I'll never forget this, that um, it's the first time I ever heard this word perspective. I mean, I was six years old and the teacher had us the, assign, the assignment, the, the, the painting project was to paint your neighborhood. Uh, you know, so everybody, of course, paints a square box and a triangle on top and a whole bunch of them flat, two dimensional, and that's their house. 
And I painted sort of what I saw when I walked up and down the street going to school every day. And that was that the, the, the poles, the telephone poles got smaller as they got into the distance. And so, and the street on both sides and the houses got smaller one beside each other as they got into the distance. And, and I drew that. And I didn't know. I just drew what I drew. And to me, whether the, if the teacher hadn't said anything, it would have just come and gone. Big deal. But she made a big point of it and picked up the paper and walked around the class and said, you know, children, I want to show you what, you know, Kenny did. <laughs> he did what we call perspective. And that was a big word. And so that was the first uh, in grade one. And then in grade five and six, you know, they were volunteered to do the school plays people got involved in. And um, and there was an opportunity, of course, to volunteer to be the painting, the sets and everything. And of course, the art class and myself. And I started painting these sets and I was directing people how to paint brick. You know, brick is staggered, mm -hmm. but in order, one above the other, the second row is always the same as the, yeah. right? So I was doing that on these sets. And we were doing this all day in grade five and six. And we did it for the play Oliver, I remember. So it was the old English sets and the old beer barrels and, you know, and the brick. And the teachers made a big fuss and the parents came. And I was what I was dubbed the art director, another big <laughs> word I had never heard. So that was grade six. And when I finished grade six, going in now into junior high, my final report card, so I'm 11 years old, and I have it posted on the, on, on the internet everywhere. My final grade six report card said that I was uh, extremely gifted and I should in art, and I should definitely pursue a career in the creative field. Well, I didn't find that report card, Mike, uh, uh, until my father passed away 22 years ago, and I helped mom, my sister and I helped mom clean out the crawl space in our house, and we found all our report cards my sister and I she's two years old she was two years older than me she passed away uh two years ago unfortunately I'm sorry yeah that was hard and my mom passed away a year and a half ago they both passed within seven months wow. so that was very tragic for me and sort of left alone but anyway, anyway found my found my report card that said I was gifted and I guess my parents sort of hid that um, they didn't make a fuss about it. You know, us parents today would make a big fuss. Your kid has some talent that's being noticed at a young age, and they would at least give me art lessons. They didn't do that. They were sort of old-fashioned, and art isn't going to make you a living. And So that was my first, I guess, glimpse into people telling me, uh, you know, adults telling me and teachers that I was... I was good at that. That's great to hear. And it was so funny when you were talking about um, Mousetrap, just to go back to the very beginning, because I had this flashback because I remember, you know, we weren't, we didn't have a lot of money necessarily either. And uh, I really wanted a pinball machine. So I made one out of elastics and nails. <laughs> Beautiful. I can picture that. I could envision that. I was always very inventive. I wanted to build as a kid, a helicopter and fly it in my backyard, you know, get blades and stuff and pretend to build that. And I used to build rockets, models, all the models mm -hmm. when I was a kid. I mean, this was when I was like five, six. So I built all the monster models, you know, Frankenstein, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. And, and I, I, I painted them too with the, uh, remember the little, anybody, everybody's listening who built models who's old enough, those little tester 
Um, yes. They were toxic as, as hell. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's probably getting high on that stuff but and the, and the glue. Mm-hmm. But I built all these models, and I got into car models, trains, and then into rocketry, actually launching rockets, and then radio. I used to fly .049 gas planes with the lines on them in the school park, and around in yeah, circles, right? Exactly. Right? And then and then into RC planes, and now I have a few drones. I still enjoy that. I still I love aviation. I've got. Microsoft Flight Simulator, for 25 years I've been doing it. I'm now into VR. I learned uh, study level 737s. I fly a Beach Baron. And I've flown in real life, too. But uh, I've had some medical things that kept me from getting a pilot's license. That's another story. <laughs> well, that's good that, I mean, I go having this interest, right, and fostering it and being able to yeah. either revisit it or continue it as you get older, I think is fantastic. And you talk about creativity and in grade six, a teacher, you know, saying that you were, that you were brilliant with regard to creativity. You would think then that that would make sense for the rest of high school and you would do well in all the creative arts and all the courses, but it didn't exactly pan out like that for you, did it <laughs> later in high school? No, not into high school, junior high, I guess, grade seven, eight and nine didn't offer any, I don't know. I don't even remember school plays or anything or anything or art school it got more serious you know you had a schedule and courses it wasn't your little class with a teacher you marched around to different classes each hour and um albeit it was our our class that marched around but they were subjects you know history and geography and chemistry and math and um i don't remember and jim i don't really remember art i mean there was art i remember mr gordon and art um old English guy. And, you know, he used to say, don't point, you'll put holes in the air. <laughs> you know, he was real wise. It really fun. Um, so yeah, but everybody did well in art and it wasn't serious study. By the time I got, I guess, grade 12, they actually had specific art courses and I took graphic arts, it was called in grade 12. Mm-hmm. And I failed it. I got a uh, 38 or 39 and I'll tell you the, I didn't, I haven't really, I did well in school on all my subjects. I mean, biography and geography, I got into the eighties and English. I did very well. I, I took that in college as a secondary and, but graphics, I mean, come on. And I, and I remember I knew sort of why I, I did a fabulous project. It was a cereal box we had to do and I called it orbits. It was a little, you know, little, <laughs> sugar rows of <laughs> stars and everything and they were talking here back in 1974 i mean they didn't have these kind of here. they had some of them but uh, not like that and uh, and it was all with the full packaging and everything and i don't know i failed and uh this mr long at newton brook in willowdale in toronto sort of uh failed me and and that sort of hurt um, and then I went on, I finished grade 12, I actually went to half of grade 13 and thought, what am I doing? That's academic. And I, I like the arts, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I had my parents on one side saying, you know, you're better to do something professional, a doctor, lawyer, if you're creative, be, be an architect. And we, I looked at Ryerson, but I didn't have the math to be an architect. Right. And they said, well, what about an architectural technologist, which is a drafts person? I mean, this is what my parents were showing me. Anything but art, I guess. And um, I didn't know what I wanted to do after high school. And failing graphic arts. So the arts were probably out. 
So my father wouldn't stand for it. He got me a job. He was an insurance salesman and got me a job at Canadian General Insurance, uh, um, which is a general insurance company, full time as a junior bond surety and fidelity underwriter. So that's bonding for construction companies that, you know, they got to be bonded. Maintenance, uh, you know, performance and material bonds, you know, and all this. So you're doing accounting. You're you're studying audited financial statements and personal financial statements. Everything I did lousy in school at, right, in math, I end up doing. I put a suit and tie on at 18, took a subway downtown, Adelaide and... uh, and uh, and um, university, uh, and I worked for almost two years there. And I decided during those two years, and it was good training. It was good for the other side of my brain and the business end at a young age, responsibility, made some good money. In 76, they opened the CN Tower. I saw it being built from my window of the insurance company downtown. Uh, I was one of the first 100 to go up there in June of 76 when it opened. Wow. And went across Canada with my buddy. Um, my sister lived in Vancouver. She was newly married. And tripped out there, went to the Banff School of Fine Arts, had some chicks that we knew that were re- residents for the summer there. And we stayed with them. And I wanted to sign up at Banff School of Fine Arts. I wanted to sign up at OCAD. But my parents, you know, I compromised. Anyway... It was a great summer of 76, the American Bicentennial, tripping out. I was a 20-year-old, and I decided to apply to Seneca College of Applied Arts in Toronto, their graphic design program, and I got in. That's how my sort of, it all started, my education in art, more on the commercial side, and uh, and you wouldn't have thought so, I guess, when I failed it in grade 12. And two years later, I thought that was the good compromise between, you know, um, going to OCA and being just a total sort of my parents, a hippy dippy artist, you know, and then doing sort of commercial art, graphic design, getting a trade. Yet you're still in the arts. Right. Did you enjoy that? Did you enjoy going to Seneca and, and learning that kind of thing? I loved it. I mean, art, college, you know, to be with people that have the same like interests was, it just blew my mind. I made great friends that I still know today from Seneca. My partner, when I had Pinpoint Design, my graphics design company in downtown Toronto in 91, she also went to Seneca, Pauline Buckman. And I didn't know, I didn't know her. She was the year uh, after me. Uh, I was a year ahead of her. So I didn't know her uh, until after, and it was coincidence. And then our teachers, who knew, knew us both, we had the same teachers, used to bring field trips to our to pinpoint to our company after. Wow. But I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> <laughs> so you, but that was Seneca College. I had a great time. It's so funny because I've had so many artists on that are doing some level of fine art in their, as a matter of either full-time or in their spare time. And it just seems to be a common starting point. And I think it is that logic that it is graphic design. It is kind of a trades person creative job. It's it's an opportunity for you to get to work and get paid and not do piecework and not be dealing with commissions. 
and being able to get a, a paycheck that isn't reflective of what you sold or what you painted. Right. It's it's. Uh, have you ever read Doris Lessing? It was what she. It's sort of the. Um, she dubbed it a sh- uh, what they call the shadow artist. Many of us do that. We don't become the true full artist we are. We take a backseat or we're the shadow. Or we'll work for an artist or we'll work for a company. But a lot, I mean, for me, it was just to get in, entry level. I mean, I envisioned um, when I went to Seneca, of course, that I, I wouldn't be, wouldn't have become as commercialized as I did, that I would be more on the art director, creative director side in the advertising business than the owner you know, the guy with the suit and tie right. pushing everything. But that's sort of what I fell into. Um, I was very envious of my art director and creative director at Pinpoint. These people would stay behind and got to, you know, and I'd still go to creative meetings and come up with initial ideas. But then eventually you're just too, too busy just balancing the books and keeping the clients and getting new business. And it becomes just, you get caught in this whirlwind, this, this ad madman thing. And it was totally madman. I was on 100% that Wow. I could tell you stories that we can't, it's not for the air. <laughs> and so, you know, at some point you, you got to that point when you started pinpoint <laughs> um what like were you what were you doing in the interim were you uh, freelancing working out of the companies and then when did you start pinpoint and then how long how long did that run for well well after seneca i, I was working you know part-time to make money uh, while i went to seneca college and i, w- I was working in um, at eaton's department store in yorkdale in toronto um i was actually in their pet shop and slash hardware department so i learned and i love animals and i love pets and eventually i got to be the buyer there during the summers so i did that while i was at seneca and when i finished seneca i was a but you know you finish in april and i was a i was heading up the pet shop and the hardware department doing all their purchasing and everything um, because i had the experience from insurance i had business savvy business experience and i guess i just did it naturally there and they saw it and that summer of 78 the head office downtown Eaton's contacted me through my manager and said they've been watching me and they um, offered me, how would I like to work in the new Eaton center in the Eaton's advertising department? So, wow, Hmm. you know, of course. So hired within, you see, I was working part-time. So one thing led to another and I was hired in their production department. We were doing all this, the newspaper ads, all the flyers, all the catalogs for Eaton's, which everybody knows. So it was popular, great production work with production schedules. And so I did that a couple of years and then I could go through it, but I worked for Batten Graphics. I got some jobs, you know, as an artist. And then I, I, I freelanced always. I had friends who had businesses who always said, Hey, Ken, uh, how would you like to do my, and in those days, business cards, letterheads, envelopes, that was your entry into companies. Today, they do it in-house. You do it on your iPhone. But in those days, they needed somebody to do it. And that got me in. And then you got their brochures. So um, I, I worked at companies. I ended up getting a job in 83. Well, 
with a company called H&S Reliance. They're really big uh, photo engravers. They had a graphics department called Graphcom. And they hired me on an hourly basis. And because I came from school, you were making $18 an hour. And back in 82, 83, that was pretty good. It's more than minimum wage today. Mm -hmm. It shows you what school can do, children. I tell my son that who's 16 right now, and he's kind of interested in graphics. And I said, okay, so you won't be a brain surgeon or a top flight doctor, but I'm the same as my parents, you see? <laughs> but no, I, I, I tell him it's good. But um, so at Graphcom, so th this company would pay me by the hour and give me jobs there for their in-house work. And there were other artists there that you met. And they would allow me to bring my clients in there. And, and and bring the work and, and I would pay the cost to do photos, stats and typesetting. You know, they would there would be a small cost attached, but I could make money. So I did a lot of this at different companies and different ad agencies hired me as production manager throughout the eighties. So and different types of advertising I learned from real estate to uh you know, corporate and national advertising, retail mainly. And I did a lot of retail and the clients liked me over the years and kept coming with me at these companies. And eventually the printer I was using, uh, incredible printing company, Mendel Schwartz. And um, uh, he, his, his girlfriend, his wife, who is this Pauline Buckman had a uh, graphics company in downtown Toronto, a graphic design company. Long story short, they offered me if I could double their business, bring in clients and double the volume of sales. You got a free partnership here. They would incorporate me into the, uh, and, and we did. And I did after one year, I doubled the business. We were well over a million and a half dollars or something in that range. And that was pretty good then. And and I became a partner with her and we grew. We grew well. We had about up to 25 employees and freelancers in downtown Toronto. And we got all three levels of the government, all for business. Uh, we did Mel Lassman Square. We did the Toronto Harbor Commission, Indian and Northern Affairs. And then I did a lot of ad agencies as their production arm, Foot Conan Belding and Gray and all these companies. And did that for a while. And then eventually Gray Advertising wanted to do, they loved us and wanted us our, as a their own production arm. And about a year of schmoozing and they did a merger acquisition with us. Hmm. And I stayed on with Gray. That was part of the deal as sort of a VP. And then I left after about a year, year and a half. I had some health issues. So, um, and I and I reached my pinnacle. You know, Seneca College, as I said, used to come and do field trips to say, this is what you Seneca people can do, what Ken and Pauline did at Pinpoint. And so I think it was time for me to get out of the advertising business, almost 20 years, right. high stress. And I had some health issues that uh, needed looking after or it could have killed me. Did you feel this pull creatively that you know, you needed to get back to that. Uh, was that part of this at all? Or was it really just focused around, you know, the high pressure and the stress and that and the health? Um, no, no, there was always that pull. I needed to get back. There was always that underlying the dream. I remember when I merged, did the merger acquisition from Pinpoint to Gray. And we were now at Gray Advertising at Davisville and Young. 
on the seventh or eighth floor there, and I'm looking over, and I had this gorgeous atrium office in the corner. Sun was coming through. People were coming through as well with, you know, more work, more work, stress. Where's this? Deadline, deadline. And I thought to myself, why aren't I an artist? Why aren't I sitting in my studio painting beautiful paintings from my heart that I want to do? Uh, that's all. I said, that's all I wanted to do. I knew that as a little boy. I knew that at every stage. That's what I'm doing now. But uh, uh, I'm living my dream, literally. So you walk away from Pinpoint, and you've got health issues, and you decide, now I'm going to be the artist I've always wanted to be. What was the first piece you did? Yeah. Do you remember? Yeah, I have it, actually. I, I did it in 1997, January. That was the realization. Well, I, I realized, actually... I wanted to be an artist. I was down in Florida. It was the first, my first ex. I call her my first ex. We lived common law, and I lived with this beautiful woman. We had a house. We both we lived in a house together. But we used to go down to her place, her family, in um, in North in Palm Beach. We went to an art show. Her family. We all drove down to South Beach, mm -hmm. to South Miami. And we went to an art show. It was by a Canadian. This, what was his name? David something white. And they were just red, different color, but maple leaves. Like maple leaves? Very Canadian in South Beach, Florida. I mean, <laughs> like what, you know, the contrast is, is thick. But I was, everybody was impressed there. I mean, a lot was, it was the Canadian faction, mainly from Rosedale. And, and these, you know, these people from, you know, the upper scale, there was that group, but they were, and Americans too, they were just loving this and making such a big fuss over this artist. And I thought, I don't know, inside, I thought, not that I could do that. Every artist is individual in their work, but I could have a similar effect. I, I know it inside. It wasn't out yet. It was all bubbling inside. All the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of paintings that I've done since that time, in that in that short time of that was probably in ninety five, ninety nineteen ninety four. So in that short period, short period in that twenty eight years, <laughs> I've done a lot of a lot of pieces. And uh, but that was my first inspiration. And my first piece, as I said. I started painting in our garage. We lived at St. Clair in Witchwood Park area of St. Clair and Bathurst. And uh, in the little garage, there were alleyways, one of those Toronto alleyways and a little building, a garage, your own little. And I and I set up a little micro studio there. And I've got a little, I have it here, the actual piece. It was a winter scene on a canvas board. I look at it now, not very good or not very refined. But it was the first. And I remember my ex was going out with her girlfriend, picking her up in the back garage. And I sort of showed them. And, she, and in all fairness, she didn't know I was an artist. She saw me from as an ad guy, as an ad man from Gray, where I met right. her. And her and her girlfriend sort of chuckled at it. like, And I felt kind of, it made me feel bad. But I also felt determined. That that isn't my best when I'm showing you, and that because they didn't see me as an artist, I'm like some middle-aged guy starting to paint, right. right? And they saw me as a you know an ad guy or an insurance man. <laughs> so, um, so that was my first painting that I did, and then I started doing larger canvases in the summer of '97. 
of barns. I mainly got into barns and fences, you know, in the field. And were you doing acrylic at the time or was this oil? What was your medium of choice? Yeah, mainly always acrylic. And I'll tell you why. Oils were hard on me. I told you about this health mm-hmm. issue. And what it was, was I guess I was born with a, a heart murmur. A lot of people have them. It was common. It didn't really stop me from doing anything as a child or into my teenage years. And I actually partied and, you know, I could tell you too much as a baby boomer hippie, Uh artsy guy. I I can't believe I was still alive, the things I've experimented and done. But but nonetheless, it wasn't that serious and it had to be watched. And and, uh, I I was very active and never, you know, they didn't recommend playing contact football or anything. I was pulled from the junior high football team when I first realized. My parents didn't really even tell me till I was 12. Great time to tell your son when he's reaching puberty. Oh, by the way, you got a heartburn (laughs) and, you know, and it may need looking after. But um, but I, I was always very physically fit and I still go to gyms and I did weights and canoeing. I became a canoe instructor at a summer camp. Um, so uh, it never stopped me, but I needed with the stress of advertising. And as I got older, I started getting some symptoms of palpitations and at the gym on the track. And so in 90 summer of 99, I had it corrected. Toronto general hospital, Dr. Tyrone David, amazing job. And he fixed me up. So I'm good, and now I was good to go, no restrictions, and I'm sort of back. But I watch it every year and everything, and uh, so it was something that I felt, you know, I was worried about, and all my life it worried me that I could drop dead. The first gal I dated and loved, Mm -hmm. I was like 19 or 20, she was in nursing school, and she showed me her medical book, and it was highlighted, aortic stenosis. Sudden death is very common. Well, she dumped me very quickly after that. Right. So it was always on my mind that I wasn't going to live, that I could die suddenly. So in 97 I, or 99, I started getting symptoms when I was at the tr- walking on the track, and I never had them that serious before. And I just said, enough of this. Let's correct this, if it can be corrected. So I did it, and they fixed it. And then I got married after. My second wife, so to speak, and we got officially married, and I have two children. We're divorced now, uh, but I got married at 46 to her, and um, I have all these, you know, I have my children and all my art. It all came after my heart surgery, so I call it my second birthday, Friday the 13th, August 99 is my second life, and all this, all my paintings and art, and so you were concerned about doing acrylic was safer for you versus oil. The toxins, correct. Yeah. Thank you. I got a little far <laughs> ahead of myself. Yeah, yeah. The oils, the toxins, the terps right. would bother me. It would make my heart sort of palpitate and and make me lightheaded. And you can't be drunk when you do what I do. You can't be lightheaded. You, you know, the detail. It's not abstract art. It's you got to have a steady hand. Yeah, exactly. You were working with acrylics, and your first inspiration was uh, barns and fences. Was there other out art or artists out there that were inspiring you at the time that you know that you were feeding off of that were directing you either you know whether you realized it or not as a matter of what you were interested in doing? Yeah, I mean, at the time, I mean, it was of course Robert Bateman for me. I mean, because I loved animals. 
and uh, and also Ken Danby. Mm -hmm. So this we're talking in the '90s were were my greatest uh, inspiration or my motivation. I looked at their work uh, and Robert Bateman and his. I mean, we learned that in school pretty much. You know his story, um, and he was a great teacher of art. His animals, his paintings. Uh, Glenn Lotz also did animals paintings. He inspired me as a young boy. And Ken Danby. I mean, um, he didn't just do goalie in the crease. Right. That's sort of his. But I like that he could go from you know landscape and do that hockey thing. I have a hockey painting that I did of the Mississauga uh, sharks or whatever. So Ken Danby's gone now. He passed away suddenly in Algonquin Park like Tom Thompson at 68. Wow. But I went to his show, met him at Centennial, at Lawrence and Dufferin Avenue. He rented a big arena there in the uh, early 2000s. And uh, so I'm glad I saw his work and that inspired me a lot, yeah. And I'm just going to take this opportunity because you're dropping so many important names in, uh, in Canadian art that I'm going to uh, remind people that I put together really good show notes. So I will link out to all these people and... I had the pleasure of, of speaking to Robert Bateman when he was on the podcast, and that was a wonderful experience. So I will link out to that podcast if you want to listen to Robert and I speak about his journey, which is amazing. <laughs> and I think he's, he's what, 93 now? 91, 92. He's 26 years older than me. He's 92. I'm 66. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, he was the age of yeah my mom's age. Did you feel intimidated by these artists at all no or not at all quite the opposite inspired uh, motivated because i think that's what a lot of people face is they they look at the artists and depending on on who it is and your connection to them some people see them as intimidating you know sometimes you're inspired by it but other people may think i'm never going to be that good but you were looking at it as that's something I can aspire to be. That's something I can do. Yeah. I mean, to, to think, to have the mindset that I'm never going to be that good or I'm better than that person, that, that to me doesn't exist. Um, I've never thought that. There's never a competition. I mean, art is your fingerprint. Mm -hmm. It's different. You want the same fingerprints as that guy? It's your snowflake. It's different. If people are buying a lot of art, I'm never jealous. I wasn't jealous when people were buying life insurance and the sales guy in the meeting, he's the biggest, you know, the top 10, he's the, he make, he's the best. That means people are buying insurance. So you have a chance. People are buying art. If they're buying art, the individual tastes will, will come to you, will match yours eventually. So that, that was always, I never thought better, best, or felt, you know, at these shows when you're competing. There's a little bit. I mean, you're thinking like at the McMichael show and, you know, best to show is is top sales. <laughs> That's all there is right. to it. And uh, so you're looking at red dots as you're walking around on the weekend. I mean, all artists know this. And you're thinking, well, why did this guy got like 12 red dots and I've got like none or one? And then you can't help but think, you know, what's up with that? Or you think... You don't think my, mine's better, but you think mine's as good. Right. And it is. It's just timing, people. It's it's like waves uh, of energy that 
is constantly on the move. You just got to catch them like fish. Did your subjects change? Like, you know, when I look at it now, there was obviously a, um, a city hustle streetcar point in time. And then there's your wonderful pieces now uh, that I really latched on to of, of views from a canoe and, and uh, those kind of Muskoka experiences. So can you talk through kind of, because um, I'm always curious about what drives people to change what they do and how that impacts them as an artist. Like, do you become, does that change in focus and subject allow you to become a better artist in what you've been doing, right? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, in many ways. I mean, if you do it right, I guess, if there is a right or wrong, but um, that changed for me was was discovery was experimenting like like most artists you see to call it your blue period or whatever but it's our own periods and and for me as i say we started i started with barnes and i went out to prince edward county where my aunt and uncle had a big place and 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 my uncle had a yacht club that he owned in picton the prince edward cruising club Harry J. Smith, he's gone now. But um, we'd go out there, and my aunt would drive me around in, in summer 2000 to show me the barns that she thought were fabulous, and they were. And that's why I started painting barns, and I have a whole series of serious barns. And then I went out east to the Maritimes in the summer of 2000 as well, and I, got, I did a whole series on the Maritimes. They're just sort of classic. I think they had to be done okay. to be a Canadian artist. You, you know, you had to have done that Maritimes, the Peggy's Cove. And I'm talking about a, a realism artist. Mm -hmm. So they're done. They're under my belt. Uh, I still like to go back. I, I still like to go to Newfoundland and, and uh, the Cabot Trail and do some good paintings there. And uh, BC, I did a few paintings there because I have family there. My mother lived there and uh, my niece. So, but the, the change came from the barns. I guess they weren't exciting enough for me. They had no movement. They're just it's sort of still life, outdoor still life. And for me, that didn't do it. So then I got into animals right after my barns. And uh, as we were talking, and I did some great large, I did a great Ontario resident black bear, big four foot, five foot. I donated it to the Guelph Humane Society. I got a tax receipt for $3,500. A uh, long time ago. Nice. So that was a good thing that made me feel good. Um, but animals weren't for me. I mean, I can't compete with Robert Baton, you know, and I wouldn't want to. Why would I? Yeah, you could do maybe tighter, more detailed. One could. But why? That's been done. So ended up, I always did sort of landscapes along the way. I mean, that was my passion, my background, as I say, canoeing. I was a, I got my Ontario master's in canoeing as a teenager, and I taught at summer camp, and I did canoe trips, and I've done river trips, and Quebec, and flew airplanes, you know, and dropped us off at the headwaters, and I've done winter camping trips in Algonquin, and Tomogamy, and I've just, so I wanted that experience to put on canvas. It's so great. And it happens to be a hundred years exactly after the group of seven. And, and they did the same paths and superior, the same trips I did coincidentally. And I love it so much. And, and it, and it doesn't offend anybody. I mean, a landscape, the landscapes I do, 
could go anywhere, in any room, in any building, anywhere. And, and when you do specific topics, they can't go in any room and anywhere. So I ended up doing landscapes. And why not? The group of 700 years later. I'm not as loose as the group of seven. I mean, they're more expressive and surreal. Right. And um, I'm a little more tighter and more real. So, so I ended up doing um, landscapes because I loved it. There was no purpose, really. There was no method to that madness. It was just, number one, I love doing it, and it works for me. And, and then I had this other passion. When I worked at, um, in, after I left Eaton's, I got a job at um, Eaton's Advertising. I got a job at Grey Coach, which is the bus company in Canada. And, 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 and they were run by the TTC at the time. Their advertising department was in-house. And they were breaking away from the TTC as a separate entity. And they wanted a few people to run their new advertising department. And I was hired as an assistant to do that. So uh, it, was all, it was great. I got to do all the routes and it was historic, great coach. And uh, I, I had access to all their archives, the TTC archives, and they would send me boxes of black and white photos that I would look through. In 1980, I was looking at 90, all these photos you see online now of old Toronto and old TTC. I was looking at this stuff 40 years ago, and it inspired me. They were all old and grainy, and and I thought, I wonder what would happen if I could take one of these, And they were, but they were crispy black and white, nice shots. If I could take that and colorize it and get the true color of the vehicles of everything. And uh, so I started researching and going to the public library a lot, the one at Eglinton and Young, and uh, signing out books. And Mike Filey, one of Toronto's historians, he just passed away a few months ago. God rest his soul. And uh, I, I would sign out all his books, not realizing that eventually I'd get to meet him and go to his home sit and have beer with him in the basement. He'd take me to all these shows and the Toronto Trillium 100th anniversary. And uh, it was just great. And he'd help me with the color of these, getting these things colorized, the true colors. He'd send me all these swatches and images and unbelievable relationship we had. And, and that was a passion of mine. So that's what I do. And I keep it at that. My landscapes and historic Toronto um, I, 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 otherwise you can get watered down and you gotta, you gotta specialize in something and you can have a small off. I feel you can have, a, I can have a small offshoot, but not too many. I'm not going to do a lot barns as a regular thing. And, uh, right. I do commissions though. So they end up being portraits and whatever people want, that's different. And that challenges me to get me out of my mold commissions keep you sharp and and give you projects that are hard and challenging do you still kind of balance the commissions and i think this is a challenge a lot of artists get into is the first thing you're ultimately hit with our commissions it could be your family uh, it could be a friend that asks you to do something and then it can snowball from there do you try and protect some of your time like do you only take a certain number of commissions and say i've got to do my own stuff too how do you approach it? Well, I mean, I'm not that busy where they're, you know, I've got to, re, you know, refuse <laughs> them. I mean, I, I've got three commissions right now on the go. And about the past year and a half, I've been constant with commissions. And before that, I hadn't been. They haven't been constant. It'd be one or two a year. 
they come directly to me or through the art galleries, which take half mm -hmm. of everything. When they come directly through you, you can get a little more than that. So it's up to you and your own. And it, are, with some of the commissions, are you turning them down because of the subject or is it, as you say, mostly portraits? I well no they're not mostly portraits they're mostly landscape and things, people's cottages um, yeah something that's uh, you know endeared to them that reminds um, my paintings remind them of something and they got a photo of a lot of times it's their cottage or an area they like um, I have refused commissions I look at them I ask them to send me the subject the photo if it's a lousy photo. If it's not a high quality, it doesn't have to be super high res because I can fill in a lot, but it, it's got to be pretty good. It can't be blurry. Uh, if it's a portrait, it's got to be very, you know, much better or I, you won't get that likeness. It's hard enough to not do it in front of the actual live, live person. So, um, but if I have to go to their cottage or take a, I will take a photo myself. I I am a photographer. I'm very experienced professionally with photography, and um, um, I could do it myself. I just charge a premium. Right. Often they'll have me come up to their cottage. They give you lunch. They take you out on the boat all day, and you get five hundred dollars extra. <laughs> not too shabby. Nice. <laughs> but it's not often enough. So. And so the process between. You know, early on when you were doing uh, the barns and everything else, and then now when you're doing the landscapes, has your process changed? And I'm not thinking from, you know, let's, let's ignore the historic stuff because um, my question is more about, are you doing anything in the field or are you taking photos? Are you doing sketching? Is sketching part of your process? Yeah, sketching. Um, it used to be more part of my process. It's, it seems a little less um, because it's, um, I mean, initial sketching as far as discovery going out in the field, you know, on plain air, um, sketching, um, doing color. When I go on canoe trips, which I do every year, I take my sketchbook, I take my palette, uh, more of a watercolory, you know, for faster. Uh, it's still acrylic, but I'll just put more water in it. You can do it faster. Um just to, to trap the colors and, and see. Photography is a huge thing. I mean, the group of seven was using photography right, for their compositions um, in the 20s and 30s. So it's an aid, and whatever aid I can use, I'll make notes and sketches. But more, I, I find the, the cameras I'm using now, they're so high def. They're so good. The color is so true. I don't have to write down what that color is, what the tones are. And I can play with them right on the camera, let alone Photoshop if you needed to. Um, so I, I'm finding now I can go right from the compositions almost in my head. And I know that might be too, you know, uh, right? I don't want to sound like, but. I've done it so many times and I sort of have a knack. I have a knack with color in Seneca college. They had a test, an entry test for all of us. And there were about 30 or 40 students in our class and only two of us ace, you know, the color wheel mm -hmm. and then you get the hue opposite hue tones, uh, complementary, And the teacher would just ask questions. Me and another gal were the only two that would just aced it hundred percent without even using a wheel. I don't need a wheel. I do all my work, like I say, with the primary colors mainly 
and I don't use a wheel. It's just a knack. And I, and I did that in, as a production manager in advertising. I was a top color specialist. The companies like Color Your World used to fly me to press approvals on all sides of the country to, because they're printing this stuff on newsprint and people are matching their paint colors to that. So they had to have the best color guy. And that's, that's where I came in. So I had a natural knack. Compositions, I still do. I still will. If it's tricky or I'm doing a large painting, I will do thumbnails. Okay. I could show you. I'll post them. I posted some sketches recently. Um, very important to sketch. I still sketch always. Are you sketching with, uh, and I'm going to ask you this just because I asked Robert Bateman this question, he sketches in ballpoint pen. Are you using ballpoint pen? Yeah, Are you... I heard that and you were talking, <laughs> right? Um, no pencil, HB, 2B, or not to be, <laughs> whatever's in question. <laughs> so you always have a sketchbook with you, a camera. Are you thinking... When I travel, uh, yeah. Are you thinking when you look at something, are you trying to... If you're taking a photograph, are you thinking, I need to get everything that's here and I'm going to figure out the composition later? Like you said, it's in your head. Are you trying to take the photo to reflect what your painting will be? Or are you taking the photo because you're just trying to capture the canoe and, and the rocks? And Always look through the lens of a camera to, to frame it, to be what, in my case, what the end result of the photo or the painting will okay. be. And as, a, as I was a photographer and professional uh, i worked at rouse man in brigdon's in um 1988 that hs reliance the photo engraver called me back and offered me they took over the famous historical rouse and man and brigdon's photo studio they were joined together they're toronto historic five of the group of seven had worked there as well so i was on this and i didn't realize that Till I read the book about Brigden's photo studio and Rouse and Mann, part of the arts and let uh, the uh, the um, what was it called? Um, anyway, um, so I was a photo studio manager. They hired me as that to shake up the old guard, and I was in charge of uh, twenty five photographers. Their schedules, shooting, and they shot everything from fashion to uh, kitchen, retail, catalog. A big schedule, big shooting. I learned a lot about photography. I used to assist a good friend of mine. He lives in New Zealand now. Doug Fisher was a um, professional photographer. He used to shoot for Canadian Aviation Magazine uh, for Hugh Whittington, which was the editor. And he used to take me on all these shots as his assistant up in these Bell Jet Rangers. And uh, uh, I've got all these photos and everything of my days in aviation and uh, flying and uh, executive jets with him and he's shooting a camera and I'm handing him lenses with the door off around Toronto and Niagara Falls. Great times with these photographers. So, so I, I'm very familiar with the lens. So when I'm looking through a lens, right. And I'm always, I have that, I always have that in mind composition. And can we talk about maybe the process and if it's changed, I don't know if it has, but when you're actually creating a piece, cause I've, in the last week, started with acrylic, um, learning a lot. <laughs> so I'm curious about your process in this. And, you know, for looking at, you know, maybe I'll call out this. So if I call it this piece, the early evening paddle, which to me just yeah. hit me because I've canoed a lot. And when I look at this piece, I can, oh, yeah. I, you can, 
like you can hear the water hitting the hull. Like even though it's calm, you you can hear it kind of like just there. Uh, anyways, it just it blew my mind. And so I'm wondering with something like this, Thank you. Wh- what is your process? Do you do you s- sketch out a, a rough sense of what's going to be there? Do you um, are you working on putting the sky down first and then the water and then coming in? Are you working from back to front? Like what's your what's your process? Yeah, well, technically, um, uh, I'm working from back to front, uh, from sky, uh, sea, land, and and foliage, details, rocks in the foreground. Um, in that case, early evening paddle, and that's sort of my, I guess, my biggest hit, so to speak, if you were to call them all songs. Um, that was, and one of my earliest paintings, that was, I did a series of 36 by 48 large sizes way back when, uh, in 2003 or four, um, when we were going up to Muskoka at the Arundel Lodge with my two toddlers, my, well, they were babies and my wife, uh, and renting sort of a cabin up there. And it was just beautiful. And so again, from taking photos and sketches and, um, coming up with that but in that in that which i'm doing now again and i hadn't been on the larger pieces that's the background is airbrushed uh, in the 80s while i was working in advertising i took a night course at george brown airbrushing i mean i had a knack for it but i just you got to do it right you know at a study level so so i did it right and i and it was a fun course you meet people and it's always great when you meet artists of like-minded and uh, so that helped me. And I painted the background. It gives it a more smoother background, a more without having any brushstrokes. And even even the best, when you get that size of a canvas, and I've tried to do it dry with a brush, and I can achieve some success, but you'll still see some stroke or line. It's not a pure blue sky that you get in Canada, those pure, you know, and um that always bothered me. So I'm back to actually my latest painting that I'm working on now um, is also a Georgian Bay with a kind of similar, without the canoe though, with an airbrush background. And then I, again, I'll lay down the, uh, I'll do probably, usually in black, and many artists will go, no, sacrilege. But in black, I'll lay down the scenery, the hills, the, the edges of the trees, uh, or they hit against the sky. Okay. Sometimes you have to do that. Actually, I, I, I do that first. Sorry, to do it properly. Sometimes I miss that step and I kick myself. If I do the black, well, first I do pencil. I, I sketch it on the canvas. Sometimes I'll project that to sketch it. Uh, often. I'll do it by hand, just looking at my sketches or my photograph and sketches. And I'll transfer that up to the canvas. Artists have many different ways they do it. They can do it in grids and squares. I mean, I've done it in all ways. Um, you get it up there and then the background. So then I'll do the the land, the black land. Then I'll airbrush. So when I spray the airbrush on, you'll see the black underneath it. It's half disappeared, but it's still there. And now I can trap it and put it on front. You get a sharp edge. You don't get the breast strokes up to the edge of trees that you see in paintings. Right, right. Um, and then I work light. Uh, I work forward, light over dark. Okay, okay. That's uh, that's interesting. I 
it, it makes sense. I mean, you always, uh, and are you blocking color at that point? Like, you know, are you putting in blocks to say, okay, in this section, this is the darkest green that's going to be within this section of tree. So I'm putting that down first. And then are you thinking that way? Um, yeah, that's in my head. I guess that process of where I'm going to go with that, but usually no, I'll just do it dark. If it's say trees in the background, even if they're going to be fall foliage and bright colors, mm -hmm. I'll do it in black because that's, that's the underlying for me or black, or I'll have a green in there. So it's a very dark green. I don't do jet black. Right. No. I'll always have some underlying color, but to your eye, to the human eye, it's pretty much black. It's 80, 90% black and 20% green or whatever, depending on, and, and that gives me the contrast, the punch in the background that gives to me the depth, the dimension that's lacking in a lot of realism landscape paintings where a lot of artists say, I refuse to use black and okay, then to me, you're refusing to see a punch in your paintings. Maybe they don't want that. I don't know. I think that's even consistent with when I look at people doing graphite work, pencil work, they tend not to push the blacks as hard as they should. They tend to, they live in somewhere between 2B to, well, not even 2B, like HB to 2H. They tend not to go darker. Yeah. And when you don't go darker, you don't get that depth, right? And right. Um, you don't get that separation, but even though the eye perceives it, you don't get that separation existing. I love this piece. I love the composition too, because this canoe is, it's like it's pointing at that gap between the two islands. And you can see that there is a yeah. breeze that is through the two islands. That's obviously yeah. coming from the left. That isn't hitting you yet, but you know, right when you get around that corner, like it just blows my mind, this piece. It's a great piece. I've done other pieces with that success of that pointed canoe. Um, and they're good and they all, they've all sold, but nothing like the first one, you know, you're again, your first album <laughs> and, uh, and I was sold again, as I said, out of Paula White Diamond out of, uh, St. Thomas, Ontario. She sold a few large ones and they were my first big ones in the early two thousands. And, um, somebody has that and they, that, that one early evening paddle, AKA paddle Muskoka, but I, I left it at just early evening paddle because that one is currently on billboards in America right now because it won the fine art America billboard campaign contest had a million and a half artists that they represent and I top 20. So it blew my wow. mind that I'm now it's right now someone saw it in Milwaukee and then the sales were up in Milwaukee, my, my print sales. And, you know, you see that it spurs up. I'll tell you, if I could buy billboards in every single city, uh, you'd be rich. I don't know if you'd be which you'd be broke before you're rich, though. But it... <laughs> yeah, I saw that uh, you had posted. I don't know. If, I guess it was on Instagram. And it was as a poster. And I'm thinking, oh my, that's that's pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, well, it's across all my social media: Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and that was a real feather in my cap to get that. And uh, and uh, and that again is one of my first paintings and. Uh, you know, I'm thrilled, thrilled by that. That's as we speak, that's on billboards. So in America. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love, you've got quite a few pieces where you've got kind of those, uh, you know, the water's not too deep, maybe three, four feet, and you, it's very clear and you can see the waves, um, you know, the, the, the crests uh, of the waves along the bottom of the, of the water. And 
I, I'm just wondering, you know, with all of these pieces, what's hard? What is hard to do for you? What's I not say hard? What's challenging? Your water is challenging. Only because it, it's like I think it's because I overthink it. Okay. In my early years, I did it so simply, and now I'm thinking, can I do it again? And everybody's saying he does water so amazing, it's moving, and I'm thinking, okay, can I do that again <laughs> and again and again? And it and it's that it, it, it's scary. I mean, so you overthinking it. You know, I don't know if you play golf, but uh, it's like golf. Those who play golf, you know, you're when you overthink it. Yeah, I'm gonna pull the club only this far back and I got to turn my hands and, and then you flub it and it's terrible when you don't think about it. So I try to have confidence in myself, but there's always that. I think every artist thinks that is this it? Is this the end of the line? Is this, I can't do it anymore. And there's been times and you've asked me, have you ever had a failure or have you ever had a, uh, walked away from a piece? Yeah. And I thought that's an interesting question, Mike, because uh, yeah, <laughs> many. I could show you here my condo, rooms full of walked away pieces, and um, you know, I, I should reuse these canvases, jessel them over, and so what? What causes you to walk away from a piece? Like uh, what? Do, what happens that you get to a point? It's like I can't, I can't fix this, or I'm not inspired by what I was doing, or what is it that I, I didn't know, and now I know. And it took a while. Um, lack of planning. Okay. Thinking that, you know, thinking, as I told you earlier, oh, the composition's in my head. I can do this. And then you don't. I need to have it sketched out. It's just the realism, the way I do it, how I grew up as a kid with paint by numbers. You know, I was good at that. And, um, I need to more, and I don't mean every detail in between. I need the outline, basically. I fill it in after, but I need that to be trapped, the outline of the tree. of the, Even if it's small, if I'm putting a small detail in, needs a little two rocks over here. You know, if I just do them with paint, paint onto the canvas, I can get it, but it just seems better when I just trap the outline with pencil, a little sketch of it. And it just seems for me to be more successful. So lack of planning for me. And now I plan it. Like, like I said earlier that painting black for the background of the trees or whatever. So if I, I paint the blue first, the sky, and then paint that on top of the sky and then realize that, or, or, or paint the black first, then the sky after and realize I did that wrong. You know, the, the process is, so if I keep a more of a graphic, this is what I learned in graphic design, the process or procedure mm -hmm. in doing a project, the painting will be more successful. And, I, and, and lately I haven't had, the last few years, I have had no duds or, you know, or what I call a false starts. Right. Now I asked you about what was hard and you had said water. What is... Not necessarily easy, but what is, is there something in some of your paintings, especially the landscapes, that you really enjoy doing? That that is your, your Zen thing to do? Is it like, you know, trees or the sky? Like, is there something that you really enjoy doing? There's no one element. I mean, they're all one element. Right. That's like saying, which finger do you like best on your hand? Well, my thumb works best 
No, I mean, so, but clouds, I enjoy doing clouds. If that's what you, I sort of get what you're asking. I'm joking. But yeah, in doing the clouds, I use my hand. I use a sort of a water-based oil for clouds as part oh, of wow. it. Um, and then I, I can use a retarder for my acrylic that'll keep it wet longer. And then it's more malleable. I can work it in and move it around and blend in the colors. I love doing clouds and I've had good success with clouds, but I love them all. The trees, they all are elements and they all, um, they all are similar. I mean, they're nature and they all complement each other. Right. The clouds look like the trees. I see the shapes in the trees in the clouds. And in the rocks, it's nature. It follows a direction and it's sort of, there's an arrow of direction or time that the painting follows too. And can I ask you, It's interesting when you're working with the acrylics and we'll get into the tools here, because I'm curious, are you using like a stay wet palette or are you just putting it onto a normal air dry palette and managing yeah. how much paint you're putting on? Yeah. Um, I, I used to buy that waxed paper that desserts or whatever their wax. It's got a hole in it. You pull it and it's $17 and went up to 22 for 40 sheets. And I, and you run out once in a while and I discovered, you know what I discovered? And it's a tip for all you artists out there that are paying a fortune for art supplies. Um, tin foil. Oh, just tin foil. You have it in a roll, you pull it, you zip it off, whatever length you want, you put it on your board. You got two sides to tinfoil. They're good. I have a spray bottle that I can keep it wet. I try to preserve and just put only enough paint that I figure for that session. I always go way more, but, you know, you try, you learn eventually to not use, you know, too much. And, uh, and I do it on tinfoil. Mm. It's cheap as hell. And it, it beads up, and it's it's just perfect. And when that dries, I flip it over. You got the other side of the tinfoil. Change the water in the cup. Nice. And you're good to go. So I saved a lot of money doing that lately, than running to the store for those fancy white sheets. <laughs> uh, that's a tip for anybody. Try your tinfoil. See if you like that. Some people don't like it. I mean, there's a feel to the, you know, um, right. You know, to the there's a feel to it, and your paint on it. And if you don't like that feel, some use, I, I had started with a, a real palette, an acrylic palette or plastic, and it's messy and you got to scrape the paint off and I don't need that right. hassle. Yeah, I agree. I've, I've started using a stay wet palette and it's worked well because I can spend an hour and then come back the next day and the paint's all still wet. Um, so yeah. that's that's been working out okay so far, but you know, I'm going to try tinfoil. <laughs> Just... Is that and that's with acrylic yeah. you're using? Yeah, yeah. So wow. it's uh, it's basically uh, and it has a cover. I've seen those. Yeah, yeah. with a cover. Exactly. On. It's just basically a a Tupperware container, and uh, right. it it works well. I've been you know I I have paint in there from four days ago that's still wet. So and I'm wow. I'm curious like you mentioned uh, a retardant or you know the, the elements that you can add the mediums that you can add to acrylic to to slow its drying. Are you are you being intentional about when to use that? Are you using it all the time? Do you use it for certain elements? Uh, no, I'm intentional when I use it, certain elements. It's not all the time. I'll use water to, you know, loosen up something or get it consistent. Water will. And, uh, and I'll have a hair, I have a hair blower right beside me so I can really quickly 
blow dried in, in 30, 20 seconds and then go over it again to deepen the color, whatever I want to do, or beside it to butt another color up next to it so it won't bleed through like watercolor. So you can, or make it like watercolor, have it bleed through and just add more water. So the retarder I'll use mainly for, for clouds, uh, for water, for refining water, like strokes to make it smooth, like it's swishy, which I have to do on this big painting. Or, um, Are you doing that because then you can work it longer as well? Yes, and I can use my hand, my finger, and and blend it out, gradate it out, whatever I want to do, or it would take away a hard edge to it off the brush and have it as a blurred edge or whatever I'm trying to do. Uh, I can adjust that. Uh, with my hand and my different size fingers. I use my baby finger for a smaller cloud. Just tap it. I'll lay it down with a brush initially. Just put a dot or a, a rough shape of that cloud. And then my finger will push it out from there and blend it in. And then I'll add more dots of paint and blend it around, thicken it up. And it's pretty simple. And beyond using your your fingers, I assume you use brushes. <laughs> and so what brushes do you prefer? Lots of brushes. <laughs> Lots of brushes. Sable brushes. Um, Is there two or three that you kind of go to? No. Well, I I mean, it depends what I'm doing. When I get down to when I'm the, the larger, when I'm doing a sky or, or the, the blocking in the background or something, uh, it'll be a larger brush. Uh, it'll be a three, four inch, five inch, even a larger canvas, a six inch brush. And then uh, as I do the painting and progress, and I'm known for my detail and I try to maintain that, I, I've failed where I haven't put, uh, like at art shows where I haven't put my detail in, where I try to do it quickly and cut corners. And uh, I've been told that, and by critics and by customers, they come to me for my detail. So I have sets of brushes that are very fine, that would be used on, you know, fine model work that are down to like, you know, a point, point four, you know. Um, I have a few sets of them. And I have a headset with magnifying glass if I need it to really get wow. up tight, up close and tight details. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm still trying to sort out my brushes. I've, I went out and uh, on the way home from work today, I picked up some more real thin ones because I've got to do some really. You can see the tiger I'm working on here in the background. I've got to start doing the hairs. Yeah, I love that. I saw that on Instagram and I commented <laughs> yes. on that. You weren't sure whether you should go big, and I said big. Yes, there's more detail, but it's more wow. Yeah, it's uh, especially with a tiger. It's like live, yeah. right? You don't want to go small with a tiger. Well, it's, yeah, I... It's beautiful. Look at it. I mean, yours, I don't want to say it, but look out, Bateman. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, I don't need that kind of uh, blowing up my head too much, but I think that... Uh... I had another artist on here, and he's like, you got to do just a big piece. So I went and bought this two-foot-by-three-foot canvas, and the smallest piece I think I've done up till then was like 11 by 17, and that was pencil. And uh, oh. my first time trying acrylic. Well, look at that. And it's successful, you see? <laughs> You're on your way. Well, we'll see how it turns out. You're right behind me there. <laughs> the timing and having you on here is fantastic because I'm just recently baptized in acrylic. So I have all these questions. So that's, it's just oh, perfect. Sure. <laughs> Let me teach. I'll teach you. <laughs> and Cheap lessons. And like just on the teaching bit, have you taught others? Have you instructed anyone? Uh, um, no. No, I not not officially. I mean, my you know, at 
my kids, you know, public school, like the field day thing. And I set up a little booth and I was showing when we were with the kids, but no, no, not, not in any serious manner. I've had some, um, in 2014, my, my, the, alma my alumni, um, at Seneca college that I'm part of, um, they've been following me. And in 2014, they, invited me to a big dinner there at their uh, campus uh, evening gala event. Um, it was a, um, a distinction of uh, merit, uh, recognition of distinction. Mm. And uh, they had some big awards on stage. Uh, you know, CTV's Colin DeMello. He went to Seneca, was MC. I met him. He likes my art. I met uh, um, Dave Duvall, quite a few people there. And, um, I didn't get an award and go on stage like some of the big business people that went to Seneca that were big, you know, big shots in business. But I got a, a listing and, a, a, as I say, a, a recognition of distinction, an official and the only one in their design, uh, you know, school that has in their history, which I always joke and say, well, that doesn't say much for <laughs> Seneca's design if I'm the only one. But uh, it was very nice. Yeah, it, it is great. I mean, it's great to be recognized, have your peers, or whether it's peers within what you're doing, or peers with regard to going to to a uh, an institution yeah. like that, being able to recognize this. I think it's it's great. But uh, yeah, I mean, at Seneca College, I met, I, I did a, a painting there. It was a pen and ink. You'd appreciate that, like a stipple, pointillism. It was a project they asked us to do in college, and um, and they they. They gave out the marks, you know, a few days later, and they held mine back, and uh, I didn't get it. And they said why they were holding it back was because they thought it was the best of pen and ink they had ever seen in the college. And they wanted to put in for a mark to set a new mark grade at Seneca College from A-plus to A-plus-plus. Plus. And they gave it back, I got it back with an A-plus-plus. Plus. And then all the students at the time, there was a radio chum radio contest going on with send in a letter while you and your friends, or you and a friend would like to see a private concert with the Rolling Stones, private party and send in a letter. And I wasn't a big fan of the Stones. I sort of like the Beatles, Pink Floyd. You know, I was a Beatles, not the Stones. Right. I, I like them, but. So everybody in college said, Ken, submit that Mick Jagger painting that you did, that Mick Jagger. So I made a copy of it. I framed it. I took it down to Chum Radio at St. Clair and Young in 1977. And I was working at Eaton's in the pet shop, right, while I was at college. And I got a call on a Saturday from Chum Radio at the pet shop. You won. Come down tonight. It was a surprise. And we all knew it was a surprise. Uh, it's historic, actually, this event. Come down to Chum Radio. Bring a friend. And uh, we can't tell you where. Just come down to the radio station at 6 o'clock. So I go down with my buddy Gil. And, and we go down. And they took us on buses, drove us around the city for an hour or two until, to ditch everybody, till they pulled into the back of the Elma Combo in the back alley. We all went in. There were rush seats, so just grab a table. We rushed to the front. We got a table right at the side of the stage, me and my buddy Gil. It was a table for three because part of the table was touching the stage. And um, the Rolling Stones came out, and Billy Preston was playing uh, on stage, so there was no room for Ronnie Wood. And he had to sit somewhere. He sat at the table with me and Gil. Huh. 
And uh, me and Gil, come on, you're not Ronnie Wood. I'm 20 years old. You're not Ronnie Wood. Yeah, I'm Ronnie Wood, man. And he and, and he pulls out his black book, and we look in it, and my buddy Gil can verify. I wish we had iPhones. <laughs> and so my buddy Gil says, uh, uh, you know, you're not. You know. So we look in the black book, and there's Dwight something, which was Elton John, uh, Leon Russell, uh, Rod Stewart. We're looking through it, all these names, right? It was hilarious because he wanted to, us to believe him. And we're splitting beers with him. Mick Jagger's keeping his water. He wasn't drinking alcohol at our table. And we talked. He's an artist, Ronnie Wood. Mm -hmm. He was very interested in my work. And he said it when he goes to the radio station the next morning for their interview, he's going to look, ask them for that framed portrait. He wants to see it. And I said, make sure Mick Jagger gets it. I have no verification of this there other than my buddy Gil. But that was the big Elma Combo Rolling Stones night with Maggie Trudeau. Okay. Was there that night. And uh, so my art got me into that from college. That's my first claim to fame. That's awesome. It's funny. And, and I've met a lot of famous people because of my art. Yeah. Uh, Kim Mitchell, Jeff Healy, the late, great Jeff Healy. Yeah. Uh, I was friends with. Yeah. I'm still friends with Kim. Yeah. I I saw yeah. Kim Mitchell. Um I've seen him in concert, but I saw him on your on your feed, and I, I think I read somewhere the story about with yeah. Jeff Healy as well, and uh, it's great. I mean, it's yeah, it's it's interesting to see so many musical artists have a connection with visual art, right? And I I had heard about Ron Wood. You know, you've got people like Joni Mitchell, and uh, so many That's right. actors that Gordon Lightfoot. They hung around with artists. Ken Danby was good friends with Gordon Lightfoot, and. They hung out at the riverboat, and I used to hang out at Say What with Jeff Healy. He used to play jazz on Saturday afternoons with Joe Rockman, the manager bass player. We used to sit and drink pitchers of beer, listening to Jeff and the Jazz Wizards. Like, it was very artsy, very artsy. And I feel I'm that next generation I touched with that, you know. I'll have to make sure that I include links to uh, to all of this, because I'm sure there's people there are people listening that haven't heard... Uh, Jeff Healy or, or Kim Mitchell, and uh, th that's some good music. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, good Canadian homespun. Yeah, right good here. to paint with. Good yeah. to paint, too. <laughs> yes, absolutely. absolutely. So do you have you done any uh, digital work? Or are you, like, have you, I'm talking about iPads or anything like that. Have you, has that been of interest at all? No, to do digital art and create things, no, other than some Photoshop, you know touching up contrast or taking down the saturation right or fixing a background or something or for commercial for type to go in or something no okay no doesn't interest me really i mean because i did it in graphic design pinpoint design my company in uh, in 89 90 we were one of the first uh, uh graphic design companies to go computer totally mac we invested in it. They gave us lessons on Quark Express and Illustrator, all of us, uh, because we purchased the equipment. It was a lot of money. That's why Gray Advertising was interested in us. We were electronic, and they wanted that technology. Me and Pauline wow. were well ahead of our curve. We were getting retail ads out so quickly. Or other other companies and our old, we had a dark room for photo stats. You had to send out to a typesetter. We were doing it all in one. That's why all the ad agencies wanted us as their production arm, Pinpoint. That's why I was able to double the business. It was the right time. So I have, I'm, I know computer graphics and design, and I, that's why I got out of that. 
mic so that I can just do, you know, by hand on canvas the way they did it 500 years ago. Um, and to me, that's true, true art for me. I mean, look, digital art is art. Right. Absolutely. And I love it. But it's not for me to do. Do you think that, you know, when when you think about what you know now around painting and especially working with acrylics, what advice would you give someone who's starting out in acrylics or starting out in painting? Uh, what lesson would you give yourself going back in time to be able to say this is this is how you should approach it? And not really. Everything has meaning for what I'm doing now. But maybe, as I said, to specialize, don't water yourself down. Don't be the jack of all artists. Um, try to pick something that is more endearing to you. That that it doesn't mean you always have to just do that. But let people know that's who you are. That's what you specialize in. The specialists make the most money in any field, whether it's a doctor or or an artist. The specialists are the most successful than the generalists. And uh, so I would say that. And I would say incorporate social media. Incorporate it. Put it in. Put it in. And if you're not so many artists I know, especially the older ones, they're not really. They have a few things, you know, a little website. They're not keeping up with that. And I can't even imagine, Mike, the day, I mean, 20 years ago, I had to go around and I have my portfolio case here, a big zippered thing with with ugly photos that weren't even that high quality that you had to go around to one person at a time, one human at a time, one gallery at a time, and you had to travel there. I mean, today, what you have is in 5K, it's like you have, and for visual art, there's nothing better than the internet that is born. It's made for that. And that's made me. I would not be nearly where I am without visual, without the internet and social media for art, for visual art, um, not for talking politics or religion. And you're right, because I do see so many artists and it is older artists that just choose not to be on social media. You know, they're leveraging the galleries uh, but they just don't have a presence online. So I, I would agree that in, in two things that you said, one is leveraging social media, but also niching down, right? In ensuring that, you know, I, I think I struggle a bit, but I think my niche is, is wildlife. And I, I play with graphite, I play with watercolor and, and now acrylic, but it's, it's all wildlife. I don't do landscapes. I have, but I don't. So I think I've niched down a little bit. It's probably going to happen more and more as I get into playing with different things. But I think those two points, I think, are really valuable. And the fact that, you know, specializing or niching down is helpful and leveraging social yeah. media and having that become your story. Because when I look at yours, like, it's just, it pulls me right in with everything that you're posting, everything that you're sharing. You. It's all you. And it's not, you know, here's a, a, a pasta dish I had. Uh, you know, if if you want to post, I was just gonna <laughs> like, I was just gonna say that keep it all your art as much as you can. Okay, once in a while, show you're a human yeah. being behind your art. You have children, or you're proud of this, or a birthday. That's fine. Uh, they they want to see that, but for the most part, you're you're successful. You're doing it. I mean, I know you. I look at you and I picture the little rodents you do. Those beautiful. I mean, the, the turtles uh, and the colors of them. You know, I, I love the sliders, the turtles, <laughs> the uh, terrapins. I used to have turtles. 
six of them. So, I mean, so that you're, you've got that, I think you're doing it right as Thank well, uh, but a lot are watered down. You look at their websites and, and they should be a, with one click of a button, Mike, uh, this is unbelievable. I can't believe it. Maybe it's our generation with one press of a button. You, I have a hundred, a quarter million people potentially will see my work in beautiful 4k, 5k imagery. Right. Um, you know, because you post in groups that have a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, and you couldn't do that twenty years ago. My God, shame on any artist that isn't out there in social media. Yeah, and this you can start if you're just starting with one or two or three pieces. As long as you've got enough to fund it and live and live okay, sure. start a website. And it's so funny because I was talking about people posting their food, and I, I scroll down and I see you with your kids in uh, in a restaurant, and uh, I, yeah, I, I think that's great because I think that that the problem with some artists too is is they're leveraging Instagram. And I'm looking at your Instagram. They're leveraging Instagram as being their portfolio, which I don't think is a good thing to do. I think it needs to reflect you as an artist. And so I think that look behind the curtain to know that you're human, you've got kids, these other sides of your life become part of the narrative when people see your work, right? Sure, sure. They they, they make it, um, it almost makes it legitimate your painting this is and they get to know you which uh and 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 again and that speaking of knowing me i mean that's another thing with art and you talk about the group of seven and most art in the national gallery and they're they don't, they don't like representational art so much and and um you're looking at expressive art people want it they think and this is a, this was the thing in the 70s and 80s that that the the whole it was to guess what the artist is feeling, what this artist that had mental issues or drug issues. I'm, I'm kidding with that, too. Tongue in cheek. Um, what what is that that they put on canvas? What were they thinking? What is that? And mine is the opposite. Mine is I want to know. Never mind what I'm thinking. You can look at my paintings and, and you'll know what I'm thinking. It's serene. It's solitude. It's calm. I want to know what you're thinking. What is my what do my paintings bring out in you in the viewer? And I get constantly at shows and emails and texts all day long about how can your painting reminds me of when I was a child or my grandparents place or when I was canoeing or it just makes me feel calm and peaceful and and to me that's what art is. Is art really about guessing what the artist was feeling? I guess it's both. Right. I'm not sure. Yeah, like I, but I love what my art does for people. The art can touch somebody in ways that you don't know. I've had so many messages through Instagram where somebody shares a story, some of it very personal stories about what a piece has triggered yeah. for them, and I just love that people have surfaced that memory for themselves and shared it with someone else because you know it's going to stick with them for a few days. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I had that, you know, in the late 90s when I was first doing paintings and I had my website, KenKirsch.com, which, by the way, I another tip, my website is now linked to Fine Art America for 40 bucks a year. And it's linked and you can sell stuff or you don't have to sell it. It's up to you. But that link, I can now load everything and they advertise and they push that and when they, and search engines. And, and when I was doing it myself, I was a slave to moving around my photos when I'd add a new one, I have to shift everything over. And so that was a big thing for me to do um, was to move that, uh, move my link to a larger player like Fine Art America. 
And so how's that been for you? Because I wanted to kind of talk about, you know, the business side of being an artist. You've got, uh, you're probably represented by gallery as well as selling through Fine Art America. Is that? A, a few galleries. I'm licensed. I license my work. Um, I'm licensed with the Art Wall. They're in, out of uh, a suburb of Cleveland. I've been with them for about 10 years. Okay. Um, they got me on Amazon and Overstock and Wayfair and Walmart. If you Google my name, you can buy canvases through them and and I get a percentage and I don't know how creative their accounting is over the years and stuff and then I've just did a licensing with uh, art licensing they're out of Vermont uh, in the states these are American and they have millions of viewers and anybody wants to buy an image and you can license and it's great stuff because you're you've done the original painting it's done it's either sold and often it's not sold and I'm selling copies long before the original sold you're making money on it um, it's not a lot, but it adds up. Um, so, I, and I've got a calendar, big calendar with Pine Ridge Art here in Markham, Ontario. Uh, I think I'm in my fifth or sixth year licensing with them. It's very successful. That sells out in stores all over the world. Mm. So that's nice. That makes a little money for you. So you've got to be in all these places. It's very important to to be diverse license your stuff the galleries will come to me i mean i don't have to go to them i'm very fortunate but i don't have enough inventory for them right uh, my stuff just it takes a long time to paint my paintings the big ones can take up to 100 hours or more wow uh, so that i get a little more money for them but uh, i can't fill galleries and people come to me directly why would i want to be in a gallery i do better marketing than the galleries sometimes they sit there for years and, that, and that's what I'm giving them free consignment for so they can sit there. I expect they have thousands of good, qualified customers that buy art, and many don't. You don't. But the galleries I'm with now, I'm with Select Galleries, Select Art Galleries in Newmarket. That's where Robert Bateman is with. Mm -hmm. That's where I meet and show with him up there. And they're, they're putting on a big art show through the Pickering College in uh, Newmarket, big boutique soiree, December 2nd and 3rd, and it's a meet and greet, the artists, and I'll be there. I'm there with a sculptor and a whole bunch of other Christmassy tchotchkes that'll be available. So we're, we're promoting that. That's a little show I'm doing. Nice. We didn't do the McMichael show. I usually do that in Kleinberg every year because of COVID. They've been sort of closed for two years, unfortunately. They're taking a cautionary uh, stance this year. Where do you see yourself being like in three or five years? You know, I, there's the sort of the rung of the ladders, they say. I've been climbing this rung, I guess, all my life or since uh, 90, 1997 when I decided I'm going to do this more or less full time. I mean, I do my insurance business and I still do that. I'm a licensed insurance broker. Mm -hmm my mom and dad were and i inherited their well i worked in their business and when i left uh, gray advertising so i worked for myself and i could paint and do what i want on my own schedule but that meant going out and night calls and everything now it's all electronic and since COVID, i can do all these applications and renewals and stuff online but i enjoy that it's the other side of my brain it keeps my business savvy going keeps me sharp and I make money doing that. I get renewals just like royalties with art. I sell an original policy, an original painting, and then I get 
renewals from that policy every year and I get royalties from that painting every year. So they're almost identical. Hmm. I love them both. Um, and I've been working them for 30 years both together. So I see myself, these rungs of the ladder, and I've been climbing them. And now I feel I'm right near the top. But there's that, as they call it, that glass ceiling that I've got to break. And through that ceiling is the Robert Batemans, the Alex Colvilles, the Ken Danbys, you know, the uh, the uh, Andrew Wyeth and Edward Halper. And, you know, mm-hmm. that's where I want to be. I want to be known like Alex Colville. And that's where I want to go. I think I'm almost there. Not quite. I don't know if it's even available in our day and age now with the new the new world of things. I don't know. But I'm close. And that's where I want to be in two to three years. But I'm I'm more I'm glad where I am. And I'm it's beyond my expectations. I'm doing what I dreamt when I was steeped in pressure and, the you know, the madman world. Right. And I, I wanted to be painting it at home and a sunny, sunny morning and the sun coming in. I'm having a coffee painting and the paintings are getting thousands of dollars and they're lined up. And that's where I am. <laughs> that's awesome. So don't, and you were, you mentioned uh, music. I'm in music. I have a hobby. I, I play. I'm in a band. Uh, <laughs> so I have other interests as well. I'm not just, uh, you know, I play keyboards in a band. Uh, we've been playing, we used to play all over the city in Toronto. <laughs> so what I, yeah, I'm very creative. I, I Do you draw or paint every day? Pretty much. I mean, I've got work to do pretty much every day. There's days I don't or weekends. I find all of a sudden the weekend's gone. I was out in the summer. I was out bike riding and out with friends Saturday night and Sunday with the kids. And all of a sudden, yeah, you didn't get around. That's fine. It's fine with me now. I used to feel under pressure when I needed the money badly. And uh, and there were some years I had no money. I was in 2014. I was trying to dig up quarters from a jar to get gas to pick my kids up after school to give them hot dogs from the freezer. They didn't know. Just to pay the rent and then nothing left. And uh, I've been through some very hard, hard times. And now I'm not. And it's quite the opposite. And um, what would your uh, what your parents say about you being such an accomplished artist? Now, my dad didn't know. He passed away twenty two years mm-hmm. ago. He was seventy three. He didn't know. He just started out. Started in, I, my first two art shows was at the Anchin Gallery in ninety eight, ninety eight, and ninety nine. She's a second cousin of mine. She's a law court stenographer, and she had these gorgeous offices in the Commerce Court downtown, and she loved art, still does. And her walls were gorgeous. And at night and weekends, why not have an art show? And she became a curator in the, and loved my work, and she always supported me, and uh, Debbie Anchin. And um, that, that inspired My father came to that, and he was critical. He was like, ah, it didn't, doesn't look like that. I don't know. He was always critical. He was one of those old country fathers. And you, your son can never do well enough unless I came home with a million, $10 million. And they wouldn't care how you got it. Right. You're not successful. This old country, Jewish, you know, thinking that style. My mom, too. I mean, they, they were both in insurance. And they felt, just like I said, where I didn't see my report card from grade six. You know, and any other parent would make a big fuss. They they weren't crazy about my art. My mom used to say, and I was her partner in insurance, 
She's a very successful insurance agent. God rest her soul. And um, she used to say, your art is a nice hobby. You know, <laughs> it's nice. I hear art is therapeutic. It's good for you, Kenny. It's relaxing. She never took it really seriously. And none of my family and friends did. Even my friends today, like we come over, we jam once a week. They come over to my place because I'm the single guy. And quite a few of them, I have new paintings and it's being done and it's big. It's right there. And they, they won't even say anything. The whole night goes by. Maybe they're just used to it. Right. They don't look. And they're not on social media. None of my friends. They're old farty guys. And, uh, you know. Mm -hmm. Not many. So they don't know how I'm doing unless you're on social media. And like my parents, unless I bring home millions of dollars and invite them to my mansion, to them, they're old school. They're not going to see the success. So it's funny to see that difference, that dichotomy. is. is uh, and I think that's the advantage with social media as well, is, is we're able to find our people, right? We're able to find the people that we can share yes. our stories with that appreciate what we're doing. Right. And uh, that's the opportunity we need to latch on to. And I would say that we all see your work and we appreciate the work you do and the paintings you share. I think it's just fantastic. Oh, thank you. That's so nice. That's heartwarming. Thank you. So I wanted to kind of get to this point where I, I like to take what you have and be the teacher for a moment, possibly, and challenge the listener for with regard to some homework, uh, something that they can try that may cause them to kind of break through the glass wall they're under right now, or the glass ceiling, I should say. What would you suggest as a bit of homework for the listener? Um, I did. I, I thought of something, and I thought, you know, my palette. It's homework about our palette and the colors we have and the colors we use. And a lot is in acrylic. Um, a lot of us will will go buy colors. You can go to the art stores or online. And uh, I like golden colors. They're top line. I have my seven, my golden rules, my seven golden rules. I use seven colors. But many of you, many of you out there will use dozens, scores of colors, all the different hues and tones. And So I, I'm suggesting to you as homework, first, give it a thought that all the printing that you see, those beautiful color printing brochures and glossy sheets and everything, all those gorgeous deep colors are done with four lousy colors. So I would say lousy, they're beautiful colors. Four simple process colors, the magenta, cyan, yellow, and black, right? So I'm suggesting to take, to simplify your colors. I, I personally use, I use five colors plus black and white. And that's my whole palette. Everything you see there, all the years, all the hundreds of paintings, all those colors are only used with those five colors, which is a Hansa yellow, a Prussian blue, a raw umber, cadmium red, and black and white. So I'm suggesting to you as homework, why don't you try an experiment and just use a, a tone of red that you like, a tone of blue, a cyan, a tone of yellow, and use your black and your white. White helps to step down, blend half the tone by adding white to things. You can half and change the hues uh, or the tone. So uh, try that uh, and try to mix those colors. You can use a color wheel if you need to, uh, or you can do it in your head. You should be able to see it in your head if you have any uh, bit of experience with color. And just try it on your palette and mix a little bit of it. And get the right colors. And you'll see how you can intensify that color. You can change the tone, change the hues, just with those four colors. Mm. So that is what I would suggest as homework. And it's a good exercise. Uh, simple, uh, simple is more. And you've all heard that. Less is more. 
So less colors will give you more colors. It's bizarre, but it, it does work that way. Um, you won't muddy the, your palette up with all these different colors. And you won't have to spend a fortune on so many. There are specialty colors that you could buy and use and need, and I do from time to time. So that would be the homework I would suggest. It'd be fun. I like that. I like that homework a lot. Uh, especially somebody who's gone out and bought a bunch of golden acrylics. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't I didn't buy a bunch. I probably got, I think, maybe 12 different colors, maybe. But That's not that many. No, it's it's not a huge amount. And I'm trying their golden watercolors now, which are kind of fun as well. The Core series, Q-O-R. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, my watercolor palette has too many. I've, I've got like seven reds because I couldn't decide what I wanted. Um, so I've got, I think, maybe 32 colors or something on my watercolor palette. But I only use six or eight of them. So I'm just... Yeah, at a time. Yeah, yeah I, I have a few more as well stocked away or I'll pull out. Uh, I'll actually pull out, I, I say Prussian blue, but I have a process blue. And I'll pull it out to brighten the sky up or to, you right. know, to add that in. Or sometimes you'll find you need that. Um, uh, and then I do. It's just to cut corners, I guess, as opposed to making it yeah and i think you know there's there's colors like viridian green that i'll i don't think i'll ever use um like there's colors that to me just don't look like you know they're not i don't find them in nature and that's what i draw right so or paint yeah yeah it doesn't look right i'll use a sap green right. as my basic green instead of mixing my own green i'll use a start with the base as a sap and then a, a sap green it just seems the right and then i can darken that or intensify it or lighten that from there add white to it there's so much you can do i mean it's the printing process right. there there's if the combination of those four you know is millions of colors well with black as well yeah, yeah. and white yeah i think i've um I think we should spend more time, you know, people doing their little swatches. I think spending more time getting to know your colors and, um, you know, I'm, I'm finding it even in doing this tiger that I'm working on trying to get, uh, you know, I'm using a reference image, but I don't like the color of that tiger. So I'm actually using three mm -hmm. or four different reference images together, trying to get, I just want that, want, I want it to pop and trying to find the right kind of golden Siberian tiger color is is kind of a, an interesting challenge yeah and with acrylic though unlike oil it's not a one-time thing right. you got many shots at it <laughs> yes you with you know you can redo it and redo it and get it right the only thing is if you're doing it on canvas beware because those dimples the weave in the canvas eventually they'll get filled and then it'll become it, it, you won't have that dimple that homespun feel it'll start getting shiny and it'll it's overworked and that's that's a dud and then the camera picks it up you'll never get a good photo shot of it after uh it'll always be glary and shiny and from an angle when it hangs on the wall where the light hits it it's not nice and even canvas a matted or, or satin finish you'll always have a high gloss shine where it filled the valley of those canvases because you just put 30 layers on and over did it right i've done all kinds of disasters you know and i had to sand it off and then the sand pulled the canvas off and you blew it you know to get to where you are you've got to go through a lot of trial and errors mm -hmm. yep yeah agreed 
think that's great homework. We'll all try that. And even if you're doing with uh, dealing with watercolors, you can do it with that as well. I don't think you have to be bound by acrylics. I think that would be exciting to try out. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, I think it, it, it's good for people to, to, to know and feel their color. Don't get it so much from a color wheel mathematically. Right. So technical for me anyways, but I, I guess I have a natural knack at that. I mean, they recognize it in the you know printing industry. And um, so I'm taking advantage of it, Mike, uh, you know, from my business and my insurance end of it and, and my art and my advertising and my companies and, and, and you, you put it all together today now. And this is what I'm getting, which is very successful, a fabulous lifestyle I have. I have enough money and I have enough, uh, and I'm never going to retire. My friends are retiring and, and they don't know what they're going to do. And as an artist like Robert Bateman said, you know, there's no such thing yeah. as the word retire with a true artist. Exactly. And there isn't. It's a lifestyle. Yeah. It's like I'm going to stop walking or stop breathing tomorrow. You don't do right. that. And, and the great thing about art, visual art, you get better and better with age. What creative field does that? I mean, we look, I love music. I play it. You look at music and it's for a young person. They're most successful. You get, how could they write Waters or, or uh, how could they write Pink Floyd, the, the song Breathe at the age of 18 or 19? How could they have that perception to write such poetry? And a song for that. It blows my mind. But the creative comes up. Paul McCartney, too, a genius. But what is he writing after 50, 60 today? It just isn't there anymore. But it's the opposite with visual art. The 18-year-old, the 20-year-old is not even looked at at an art show. You're not even considered. And when you're older, Robert Bateman, 92, According to Select Gallery, to Georgina, who's the curator at Select Gallery, she tells him he's got over 100 commissions. He'll never get around to that in his lifetime. Yeah. And with art, not only at being older, you're better, but here's tongue-in-cheek, when you're dead 100 years, you're even better. You're even more <laughs> valuable. You're even more looked at. Yeah. So with visual art, it keeps getting better. So I would give the young artist advice and say, don't expect to make it. And if you do make it, it's going to be false. It's going to be by some big companies in your 20s thinking you're the hottest thing. And then you're going to be in your 40s. You're going to be working at Walmart. So take your time and know that your art is something that you can be successful at. In your, All of a sudden, you're successful at 75. It can happen in art. No other creative field. All of a sudden, you're successful at 75. So for all you artists who are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, keep doing it. Because you may not even know you're successful, like Medigliani, like Van Gogh. Right. Right. You you might be successful in 100 years from now. Good point. But at least you have a ticket, any artist. They have a ticket in that lottery of success, of people knowing their name, of leaving a legacy. That's more than your multimillionaire friends can say who will be dust and no one will know them in 50 years. And all you artists, you leave something, we leave something, and no one's going to throw our stuff in the garbage in 100 years. They're going to look at your name and look it up, and you live on. So for me, it's not money. It's And I'm I'm living that dream, Mike. I'm, I made it. It's hard to believe. That's awesome. That's great. 
<laughs> That's great to hear, Ken. I, I just, I'm feeding off of this as someone who started art late in life. Um, it's great to hear this. I know there's a lot of listeners as well that are taking that are taking this kind of plunge later in life, and there's a lot of young people listening yeah. as well. I think this is great advice for everyone. If people want to follow you and continue to follow your journey, where can they find you online? Where are you uh, most active? Um, you, you could, well, you can just Google my name, Ken Kenneth Kenny Kirsch, K-I-R-S-C-H, like the German, like Cherry, uh, or just put Artist Kirsch, and you'll see pages of my stuff. You'll see my links, but KenKirsch.com, one word, my name, K-I-R-S-C-H, um, and I'm on, but you'll see my Instagram, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, I'm sort of on all of those where you can follow me and Fine Art America on my web page. There is a blog, um, press releases. That's fantastic. I'm going to link directly to all of that in the show notes. So if you're listening to this and you're driving or walking and want to learn more about Ken, you can follow those links in the show notes in your podcast app, or you can check out the website and I'll provide the link to that um, URL at the uh, at the end of the show as well. So. This has been right. fantastic. I've, I'm the timing, as I say, is perfect because I'm dabbling with acrylics now. But to hear your journey, to hear all these wonderful stories, and the path you've taken, and this balance of business and art, uh, which I think a lot of people need to learn from, that you've got to keep yourself diverse and working on with both sides of your brain and trying to move everything forward. And I'm so happy that you found creativity and you found your place and, and you're happy and you're doing it and you're creating these wonderful pieces for us to enjoy yeah. and build our own stories around uh, the work that you've done. So thank you so much, Ken, for being part of the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Mike. And for you to even recognize me and see me and ask me on drawing inspiration uh, um, is an honor. And, and um, thank you. Thank you. I mean, you, it's another rung on my ladder. You're another rung on my ladder. And a, and a big one. And I want to thank you. Thank you for having me. Enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Well, take care of yourself. We'll keep watching your work. Have a great uh, 2023. <laughs> and we'll uh, keep in touch. Thanks, Ken. Have a good one. Bye, Mike. Bye. Show notes, including links to everything Ken and I spoke about, can be found at drawinginspiration.fm slash 89. If you enjoyed the show, please follow, share, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This will help surface the podcast for others to enjoy. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Be kind to yourself and each other, and keep drawing. Theme music for this podcast is Acid Jazz, provided by Kevin McLeod. 